0: Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism, in this podcast you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo, and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, and is funded by the Research Council of Norway.
1: Hello and welcome to this podcast mini-series, analysing humanitarianism through the lens of private resident development, cases from Kenya. My name is Edwige Martin, I'm a PhD candidate at the Norwegian University of Life Science and the host for this podcast. Together with colleagues at the Norwegian University of Life Science and the Peace Research Institute Oslo, through this podcast, we bring together humanitarian actors, scholars, development practitioners, community leaders and civil society actors to discuss the implications of climate resilient development for humanitarian policy and action. Three case studies in the Kenyan drylands are used to explore different dimensions of the enabling conditions which underpin climate resilient development. We link discussions on humanitarian crisis and response, both past and future, with conversations on the interplay of broader pressures affecting rural communities and livelihoods. These pressures include, for example, land use and natural resource governance changes, recurrent exposures to conflict, and a marked increase in climatic stresses linked with anthropogenic climate change. This series attempts to bridge new perspectives on climate resilience, with debates on humanitarian response and the need for more sustainable and holistic responses to aid and disaster relief. We also ask questions on the way humanitarian responses and research can contribute to work towards more profound climate resilience in complex settings. In February 2022, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a United Nations body which seeks to provide regular assessments of the scientific basis of climate change, including impacts and future risks, and options for adaptation and mitigation, released the second part of the sixth assessment report, AR6, which was dedicated to synthesizing research on climate change impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, and introduced the concept of climate resilient developments. To tell us more about climate-resilient development, we have Prof Siri Eriksson with us, uh, one of the lead co-authors of the Sixth assessment report, Working Group 2, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
2: Thank you for inviting me. So, climate-resilient development is a concept, concept that's been brought to the forefront, especially the past 10 years, and in particular in the most recent IPCC assessment report. And it really talks about how we need to shift development a different form of development that places both climate risk and sustainable development at the center of how we do development. So it's a form of development where we mobilize adaptation and mitigation to support sustainable development. And when we talk about sustainable development here, it's a deeper form of development in terms of ensuring well-being, uh, reduced poverty, ecosystem health, equity and justice, low global warming levels and, and lower risk. So multiple dimensions of what sustainable development or climate resilient development outcomes look like. And the need to do that, of course, comes from a history both of development and inequitable development and a history of emissions and warming. So what we do now within this decade really matters for how much warming there is, what patterns of development we have, and our prospects for getting onto higher climate resilient development pathways and the types of outcomes in terms of well-being and risk and so on that I outlined. So what we know is that we need to act fast, for example, to limit warming below 1.5 degrees. We know that there are already changes and impacts from climate change. That are irreversible and that are, you know, existential to some communities, and that will accelerate and get worse beyond 1.5 degrees. And we also know that the way that decisions are made impact on the different sustainable development dimensions that people experience. So an important point here is that climate resilient development is not just a single policy decision that's made by, you know, one or a few actors at a single point in time. It's actually the interaction over time between multiple decisions by multiple decision makers in multiple arenas, both formal and informal. And what matters in terms of whether these decisions together push us in a more climate resilient development direction are the interactions between actors in that decision making. And the key dimensions here that were drawn out from the evidence that was assessed in the IPCC report was ecosystem stewardship, equity and justice, inclusion, and knowledge diversity. So basically the interactions um, and the decision making, if they are based on those dimensions, they have a you know better prospects of pushing development pathways uh, towards higher climate resilient development.
1: In the context that we're discussing, thinking about climate resilient development also takes place in the midst of recurrent humanitarian emergencies. Kenya is, for instance, experiencing a drought in the drylands, which has left four million of people in need of humanitarian aid. How can the concept of climate resilient development also help us to think about current and future humanitarian responses and policies?
2: Humanitarian emergencies really bring to the forefront that element of risk. Both the fact that the climate risks in themselves will have increased and will increase with increasing warming, And that is obviously an important aspect to take into account. So you cannot do humanitarianism without actually planning for the fact that that there will be more intense climate risks. The other aspect is, of course, that the climate risks are interacting with all sorts of other risks, which is what climate resilient development also integrates. What it also highlights is that equity and justice is really at the centre of climate action. That was really a step forward, highlighting this in this uh, past assessment report, the role of equity and justice. And so the role that humanitarian actions play in all these interactions and all the decisions that push development patterns, that's what well, becomes important. So, for example, that dimension of knowledge diversity is essential when you respond to a humanitarian crisis. So whose knowledge do you use in understanding a crisis? what the crisis is, what the impacts are, uh, and even how it can best be solved. Is it the knowledge of, you know, a narrow policymaker's sphere or which uh, local groups and their diversity of knowledge is, how do you integrate that into the understanding? What's the knowledge flow? You know, is it a top down from experts and policymakers down to the ground? Or uh, are you able to have much more of a sort of co-learning approach Using the local knowledge in interaction with the expert knowledge. So that's, you know, one example of why knowledge diversity is is important in decision making in humanitarianism. Another aspect when it comes to inclusion. So there are some examples where pers- persons with disabilities have been used to given central roles in planning disaster risk reduction. And what it showed that when you did that, you integrated, you know, completely. Other set of knowledge about who's vulnerable and how, but it also shifted the whole process to make it inclusive to wider sets of groups and improved the disaster risk reduction and improved the resilience of the local community. So those are examples of why those four dimensions matter in how you make humanitarian decisions. Going back to those four dimensions, ecosystem stewardship, equity and justice, inclusion, and knowledge diversity, those are four really key dimensions to how decisions are made, both in the short-term and the long-term. And I think particularly in the long-term, for humanitarianism, it's important to consider how the short-term decisions or how the short-term measures are made, the way that they're made are also impacting on the long-term. And, of course, humanitarianism is often dealing with, actually, long-term crises and long-term Interventions. So I think it's important to revisit sort of the political economy of humanitarianism and and development assistance to look at these dimensions. How do actors interact? How are decisions made? Is ecosystem stewardship, is is knowledge diversity, is inclusion, is equity and justice, are they at the forefront
1: of how decisions are made? I think actually those questions really set out um, some of the questions we will be exploring through this. Um, podcast mini-series. We're traveling to Cadiadou County, situated below Nairobi County, at the border with Tanzania. This is a semi-arid environment with bimodal rainy season and high temperatures expected during the dry months. In recent years, higher rainfall variability and unpredictability have been observed, and this variability is predicted to increase with climate change along with warmer temperatures. Welcome, Steiner. Thank you. And so perhaps to start with, I would ask you to introduce yourself.
0: Okay, thank you. My name is uh, Stena Senbeta, born and raised in Alkarmadien. And uh, I work with the South River Transition of Land Owners, so I Data Analyst. And I'm also uh, in the Management Committee of Alkarmadien Community Land that were elected uh, third, uh, fif- uh, 15th of uh, March uh, 2022. That is now after the transition to community land.
1: Um, and perhaps for some of the audience that might not know what the community land status refers to in Kenya, you could elaborate a bit on what it
0: means. Okay, so maybe to begin with, a community land is um, a land that is owned communally by a group of uh, members that uh, share common uh, social, economic, and political life. And uh, initially, or before, it was uh, a group rent. Still defined the same. After now, there was a new community land act enacted in 2016 that is uh, pushing for the transition to community land. Where uh, the community, the, the management committee, will not have a title D, will have a kind of a certificate of ownership instead of a title D. And also, the registration process of uh, our uh, community land is different from a group branch. So, it it was requiring the group branches and trust lands to transit to community land. And the registration process is also different from the group branch.
1: How would you describe the environment you're working in and the communities you're working with?
0: Well, uh, maybe to start with Okramatian and Shimbole are uh, currently community lands. They are, I think, the extreme southern part of Kenya, bordering Tanzania on the Lake Natron side. And they are kind of arid lands, predominantly occupied by the Maasai uh, pastoralists, whose main source of livelihood is uh, livestock uh, keeping.
1: While there is not a widely accepted definition of humanitarianism in the literature, several features are commonly emphasised, such as a commitment to alleviating suffering while ensuring the protections of lives, health and means of subsistence, notably in the context of disasters and conflict. Humanitarian responses are often restricted to short-term life-saving actions, yet increasingly the humanitarian sector is under pressure to focus more on long-term planning for a current crisis, including increasing climatic stresses, widely affecting people's lives and livelihoods across East Africa and in Olkiobaten and Champolle.
0: There are huge effects, or many effects, of climate change. One of them is the drought. That one has affected the livelihood of those uh, pastoral living in those areas. Areas, it has sometimes pushed them to move out of their communities to other to neighboring communities or so even out of the country to, to neighboring uh, country Tanzania. Also, the invasive species, which have uh, colonized like the grazing area and even the conservation area. And, uh, the bad thing about these invasive species, I can say they're very. Um, bad because they choke the other undergrowth so they kill all the other undergrowth and the livestock which is the main source of livelihood for the community there don't feed on these invasive species so the the drought is affecting their livelihood but also these invasive species is also affecting their livelihood and uh, it's not only the livestock that are affected even the wildlife there and the environment in general and uh, some of the mitigation measures by these uh, communities, is one of them is that rotational grazing. And uh, what they do, they have a wet season grazing area and a dry season grazing area. This dry season grazing area is left during the rain season to regenerate. And uh, then now, when the dry season starts, they will move to the dry season grazing area. And afterwards, they will be given access to the core conservation area. Uh, during the dry uh, the extreme dry season and again uh, these communities have uh, diversified their sources of livelihood uh, one of them is uh, those eco tourism uh, activities like conservation while they have uh, lodges and then they get revenue that is through uh, leasing, camping fee uh, conservation fee and um, Other ecotourism uh, services in the conservation uh, areas and again uh, the other alternative source of livelihood is that uh, crop farming because in this area they have zoned their areas into kind of uh, four different zonations the conservation area the crop farming area the wet season and the dry season grazing uh, area at least all these uh, spaces are being uh, utilized for different economic activities also, uh, beekeeping is practiced by certain groups of uh, women, although it's not that uh, large. Also, uh, work by groups of women, although not also on a larger scale. And um, in terms of uh, controlling the invasive species, sometimes the community can, you know, uh, mobilize the youth and even other interested uh, partners and stakeholders in those uh, communities, that is organizations, and even sometimes the government, to do the uprooting and clearing of uh, the prosopis to the flora, which is the major invasive uh, species in those uh, two communities. And so the sorority that is the organization I'm working for. also sometimes chipping in the clearing of uh, those uh, processes in the most uh, affected uh, areas. Flooding is another uh, problem that we have uh, experienced. Well, it uh, blocked the mobility or the transport of food from the major uh, areas, towns, to where those uh, communities uh, live, because it uh, blocked the roads. And there was no like passage to get uh, food to those uh, areas, so people were greatly affected because uh, they didn't now have access to food and all that.
1: And um, and in that case, uh, what kind of humanitarian responses was implemented?
0: Well, the government chip in, and also the Red Cross mm-hmm. by providing um, flying food to those affected uh, areas and also building uh, structures to the affected uh, homes because some people were homeless because there was a heavy flood that destroyed the farm and even uh, the homes for some uh, people. And then now there was that aid from the uh, Red Cross, uh, which helped them at least fly foods to their, also uh, medical services and um, tents, mattresses and all the, those uh, things to the affected uh, families, and also organisations uh, that are working in uh, those uh, communities like uh, Soralo, and even those investors also chipping in providing uh, food, beddings, and all that.
1: In addition to climate change increasing the likelihood of natural hazards, pastoralists in Kajiado County also face significant changes in land use and society. Planning for long-term humanitarian responses necessitates understanding these complex drivers of vulnerabilities, but it's also critically important to understand the dynamism of responses to climatic and non-climatic stresses associated with broader dynamics of change which are affecting pastoral livelihoods
0: education itself is changing everything in those uh, society other than this uh, crisis yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the education system itself is uh, changing so there's a kind of a big of a change of mindsets of the younger generation more particularly uh, not uh, greatly because of the crisis but because of education and uh, this on uh, this crisis have uh, like push people to settle on higher, higher grants higher lands higher areas because you know initially they will just settle anywhere but uh, nowadays they are selective on wire to raise that structure and again uh, that uh, aid also that uh, aid from the red cross have also helped them to develop permanent uh, structures because initially they were just most of them were just living on this semi Uh, permanent uh, structures. But Mm -hmm. this again has also, you know, helped them to develop those uh, uh, kind of permanent structures which are durable and they cannot easily uh, get eroded by those uh, floods. The other thing that I I can uh, say is um, how it has also impacted uh, the people's life uh, there. Well, people have now also venture into cash crop a lot more than before Mm because initially they were measuring on other food crops like maize but nowadays they're focusing on uh, cash crops mainly opposed to before the crisis but I can't say it was entirely contributed by the crisis but I think that one has also uh, brought by that Mm -hmm. because people now are in need of cash and all that to at least to cater for some other needs because, well, they can plant uh, crops, uh, food crops, but that's not enough to cater for other things like education, hospital, where else is it infected, Well, that also has a uh, shift to crop farming because there's a huge shift to crop farming now compared to previous uh, years or before even that uh, crisis. Because mm-hmm. even before that crisis the Prakase was not a fully crop uh, farming area, but after another, the people have shifted to crop uh, farming.
1: And is it also affecting pastoral mobility and the way that people uh, facilitate the the mobility of the livestock?
0: Yeah, of course, yes, it is affecting the mobility of both the livestock and wildlife, because in those crop farming areas, people are erecting fences, although not permanent fences, but at least fences that can block the mobility of uh, livestock.
1: Some dimensions have been flagged as enabling higher climate resilient development pathways, um, namely centering ecosystem stewardship, knowledge, diversity, inclusion, equity
0: and justice.
1: And an interesting point you mentioned uh, was one of the big transformation being also um, the formal education system.
0: These people that are educated get exposure. They go to other communities and get education and at least they can read Things uh, information available online about uh, climate issue in other areas that are similar maybe to their uh, to their areas, mm-hmm. and uh, through that at least they can get some knowledge that is applicable to solve a problem that they are experiencing in uh, in their land or to read some of the adaptive measures implemented in other areas. And I think that one is only through education. You know, when now these people are educated, the communities trust more their people more than outsiders. So if this information is coming from the people from that community, I think there's more trust of that information than if it is provided by an outsider.
1: And in terms of um, facilitating knowledge diversity and inclusion, what are some of the challenges to enabling these, um, based on the factors that we discussed?
0: Well, some of the challenges are, one, most of uh, this information are in English. And, uh, you know, most of the community members are illiterate. So, you know, uh, disseminating that information to those people. Sometimes, well, uh, the light in those communities might try to translate, but again, there's again a challenge in the translation of all those things to be consumable by those uh, illiterate. And the other thing, this information is not locally available. Uh, so, again, there's a challenge of access of that information to the local uh, people. I think that is uh, one of the major challenges because even when that is the the information that is uh, available in um, even even in the public uh, domain, still is not consumable by those local uh, people.
1: And is it also a challenge the other way around that there might be also indigenous Masai knowledge that is not um, readily taken on for this
0: adaptation? Yeah, sure, sure. sure. There's also other adaptive measures. that are not taken uh, or, I can say, captured by the scientists. So there's other information that is not available to the public that is uh, known by the indigenous.
1: And um, how do you see that humanitarian responses can better contribute to addressing these um, knowledge gaps?
0: How it can contribute to better is, one, engaging uh, the indigenous in the process of uh, developing all those manuals and even uh, publication that uh, you know can uh, share uh, that information from generation to generation. Because the other challenge is uh, the indigenous uh, knowledge is only available to the uh, old age. But the younger generation, because of this formal education, they don't even now get uh, time to interact with the old so that the old can share that uh, information so also even um, in that the social gap cause that knowledge is not transferred from now the the older generation to the younger generation because most of the time this young generation spent most of their time in uh, school there are no those public barazas to share that knowledge to the young and if that information is not uh, documented
1: that would be the end of it Baraza is the word commonly used in Kenya to refer to public community meetings. Um, the shape these takes and the attendance of these meetings vary greatly across locations and communities. And so perhaps my final question would be, how do you see humanitarian research uh, contributing to, to these efforts?
0: I think it contributes positively. The reason behind that is, uh, one, the zoning of Akramatian and shambola group ranges was as a result of these research efforts. And even the development of conservancies was as a result of research uh, efforts. And of course many other uh, development that has happened in uh, those uh, communities uh, concerning conservation is as a result of research uh, efforts. And uh, this can be improved by incorporating the local knowledge as well Mm -hmm. into this uh, uh, scientific uh, research. Because I think it will help to better and also appreciate the knowledge from the local communities. And, you know, when their knowledge is acknowledged, they easily accept those uh, results, results from the research field.
1: Well, thank you so much, Steiner. No problem. Um thanks for accepting the invitation and sharing with us and you've brought many interesting points um that make us think deeper about some of these issues. <laughs> Sante. Ule. Yes, thank you very much in Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the first podcast of this mini-series, analysing humanitarianism through the lens of climate-resilient development, cases from Kenya. Today we discussed the case in Kajiado and some of the dynamics of change that are shaping pastoralist adaptation practices, such as changes in land use and livelihood activities. We also discussed challenges related to enabling knowledge diversity and ensuring access to information. In our next episodes, we travel to Turkana and Samburu in northern Kenya and explore further the subject of climate resilient development. Our final episodes features a conversation between experts in the field of climate change and humanitarianism, discussing further and bringing together the issues raised in the previous episodes.